I invite you at this time to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We're looking at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 14 this morning, and the title of the message is The Mission of the Church. I'm grateful to Adam for going door to door in our neighborhood and inviting me to come preach this morning. And uh, excited for him as he's there with Shannon. I've known Shannon for a long time, Shannon Hurley there in Uganda, and does some good work there, and always encouraged when I hear about its progress. Please follow along with me as I begin reading in Acts chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done in their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, again, we come before you and thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to look to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning and help direct our hearts and minds on what you would have us learn, that we may apply it to our lives, that your name would be exalted in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, um, I'd like to begin by pointing out that there, when we talk about the mission of the church, I believe that in many churches in our nation, a shift has taken place over the past 50 years or so. Um, the term missionary or mission or missional has become so broad that it's almost impossible to know really what somebody means when they're talking about it. I remember when I was pastoring in Johannesburg a number of years ago, there was a young man in our church who had recently come to faith in Christ, and he said, Pastor, can you tell me what a missionary is? And I thought, well, this seems like a pretty basic question for a young believer. This will be an easy answer. I, but I asked him, I said, why do you ask me that? And he said, well, because I've met people who work all over Africa who call themselves missionaries, and I can't figure out what they all have in common. And this began a, a search for me of really trying to explain better what the focus and the mission of the church is, both for my own heart and for others. Uh, I noticed when I came here this morning that there is a map in the back of the foyer back there, and, and that's common. It's common to walk into a church, and, and yours is a little bit different. It's a little bit smaller. It's not quite in a prominent place, and I don't know where it was printed, but probably not America because America is usually printed right in the middle of a map that is printed here in America, and we cut Russia in half so that we could be right in the middle. But <laughs> what, what's common is that when you walk into a church, They'll have a huge wall, and it'll say, go into all the world and make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And then it'll have um, a, a, a big thumbtack right where your city is. And then it'll have little thumbtacks around the rest of the, the map. And then it'll have yarn around the big thumbtack going to all the little thumbtacks. 
and by all the little thumbtacks will be pictures of missionaries. You've seen this, right? I mean, not a lot's changed in the design of that over the past 50 years, but what has changed are the pictures. And I would propose to you that 50 years ago, most of those pictures in most churches would be of missionaries who were involved in proclamation, preaching, teaching, church strengthening, church planting. And today, in many churches, the majority of those pictures are people who are involved in social welfare, social welfare, social action, street children, orphan care, medical ministry, uh, majorly majoring on things other than the proclamation of the word. A few weeks ago, I had a couple contact me who had been attending a church for a number of years, and that church had been involved in many good things, but they were troubled in their own church because they couldn't figure out what it was about their church that had changed. They were doing all kinds of good things. Their church was involved in the neighborhood. They were actually putting together backpacks to help children in their in their own neighborhood who were under underprivileged, and they were they were focused on putting together shoeboxes full of goodies and treats for um, military personnel who were overseas. And they were doing all kinds of activities, and they couldn't fault any of them, <coughs> but they felt like something was missing. And then they realized it's not what we're doing, it's what we're not doing. And we're focused on everything equally. And they felt as though the loss of focus on the Word of God made them, they were starving. And uh, they felt for those around them, and they, they eventually left that church because they uh, tried to work through that, and people didn't seem to see what they were seeing. The English term missionary is actually not found in the Bible. It's based off of a Latin word, which is mito, which is where we get missionary from. That word is related to a Greek word that may sound familiar. It's apostello. We get the apostles from it. An apostle is a sent one. And that is used to speak of the 12 apostles, but it's also used generally to speak of anyone who is sent for a particular task, a particular mission. And so therefore, a missionary, the term that I think is best to describe or the definition that I think is best to describe them is a sent one, somebody who is sent for a particular task. And I believe that we're safest to keep that broadest definition because I believe that's how that term apostello is used in scripture, which is related to our word. In fact, in Acts 13, we have Paul and Barnabas, both of them called apostles elsewhere, sent ones, although a Paul was an apostle kind of with a capital A, and Barnabas was just a sent one from the church in Antioch. But if you look at Acts 13, verse 2, just the, the, verse, the chapter prior to where we're looking at, it says in verse 2 of Acts 13, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work, which I have called them. And that work was their mission. There was a specific task. And the question is, what is the work that our missionaries are going to be doing? And what is the work that we are to be doing as a church and as individuals in that church? Paul and Barnabas were sent out from that church in Antioch in chapter 13. They traveled around. They, If you look at the 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 ancient world, the Mediterranean world, you know, the Mediterranean Sea is right there in between Africa and Europe, and you have the Straits of Gibraltar, and you have Spain above that, and, and 
Africa below that. And then you have Italy kind of sticking out like a boot, right? And then you have Greece sticking like, looks like two Greece splotches that are above each other. And then you have Turkey, which maybe looks like a turkey. And then you've got um, the Palestine, the promised land. In that corner, that eastern, northeastern corner is where Antioch was, where Paul and Barnabas were. And they were sent out. They were the best, the cream of the crop. They were, they were di dynamic preachers. And they were sent out by that church. And they first they went to the island of Cyprus. And they started on the east side in Salamis. And they traveled throughout that island and got all the way to Paphos on the west side. Then they went north. They sailed north to, now they're in southern Turkey. They're on the north side of the Mediterranean Sea. A town called Perga. That's where John Mark deserted them. And before we're too harsh on John Mark, it was a rough road ahead of them. They faced beatings. They faced all kinds of rejection. And the road that they're about to travel was a 100-mile journey on foot, known for an area where there were lots of thieves and bandits hidden in, in, in a dangerous, danger, dangerous path. And there was also uh, malaria, a disease in that area. But John Mark deserted them there. Paul and Barnabas traveled north all the way to another town called Antioch. There were actually about 14 towns that we know of that were called Antioch based off of a Roman or a Greek general who was uh, making cities, conquering cities for Alexander the Great and his father. Uh, he named all these cities Antioch after his father, Antiochus. Anyways, there's Antioch Pisidia. That's the one in Turkey, not to confuse where they, they were from, Antioch uh, in Syria. And they traveled then another 80 miles east after they were in Antioch, Pisidia, uh, to a town called Iconium. And that's where we find them in Acts chapter 14. The town of Iconium. And as we look at this passage, I think it's an important passage for us to examine because I think it gives us a better idea of what our mission should be and what missions is all about. What is the mission of the church? If you're supporting missionaries, you've probably ha heard a lot of their stories and you've heard different missionaries talking about different focuses, different activities that dominate their time. Some people say, well, my mission is to evangelize the lost. Others might say it's to assist the poor or comfort the hurting or counsel those who are in sin or feed the hungry or care for the sick or stop the spread of diseases like HIV AIDS or stand up for those who are abused, like in human trafficking, or build facilities so that people can worship in them, or build houses so that people can live in them, or build schools so that people can learn in them, or to teach people in the education field. <coughs> or even you might find there's a big call because of all the people who are suffering even around us to assist the victims who've been affected by things like fires and floods and many things. These are many good things, and I want to make it clear from the very outset, I'm not against these things. I don't think they're bad things. I think they're good things. And I think that uh, any Christian would have a heart to be involved in them. And that's what makes this difficult, this passage so difficult and this, and this message so difficult because sometimes we could get caught up in many good things that we can do which tear us away from some priorities that we must do. And that's how the church often gets off focus. It's not as though somebody one day says, hey, Let's start a bar here and serve alcohol and bring in people just because that sounds like a fun thing to do. No, it's good things that can divert us from really where our attention should be focused. Very important things, things that we can do and things that in many cases we have the freedom to do. But we need to be careful about the balance because 
if everything that we do becomes mission, then nothing is mission. Then we really don't have a mission, and people aren't sent out for a specific work or a specific task. It's just go do everything, and therefore the term missionary just becomes synonymous with the term Christian, and every Christian is a missionary. Now, in a general sense, every Christian is responsible to be about the mission that our Lord gave us, which is to make disciples in all nations. And we understand that. At least most of us do. I had one man come to me one time who was in his 50s or 60s who attended my church and attended church his whole, almost his whole adult life. And he, he came to me and he said, uh, I just realized for the first time that I'm supposed to be making disciples, that I'm a disciple who is to be making disciples, who will make disciples. Yes, that's right. We are all called to make disciples if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And yet this idea that we're all missionaries is not right because missionaries are sent out from the church for a specific purpose. And that's the definition we're going for. The question is, what purpose should we be focusing on and have we thought about this? That was two questions switched in there, just one question. But anyways, Acts 14, verses 1 through 7, we will find five descriptions about the mission work of Paul and Barnabas that really should help you to keep the right focus as you're involved in missions. Five typical events for Paul and Barnabas that really will help us understand our role as a church and your role as an individual in how you look at the mission of the church. And the first description of their mission is the mission began with proclamation. The mission began with proclamation. Take a look at verse 1. It says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke. They spoke. Now just as they had done in the previous town in Antioch, Pisidia, they went into the synagogue. That was both necessary and practical. It was necessary because the gospel was to go to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. But it was practical because if you went to the Greeks first, many of the Jews would have seen it as a Greek thing and never would have touched it because of the uncleanness of the idea of being involved with Greeks. So you had to first go to the Jews, present the gospel to God's chosen people who, who knew about the Messiah so that their, their hearts could be converted and then they could see and understand that the gospel was not only for them but for people of all nations and they would have a heart transformed being willing to go out and share the good news with others along with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas preach, they proclaim. In fact, that was their pattern everywhere they went. Uh, back in Acts 13, verse 5, when they arrived on the island of Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God. Verse Chapter 13, verse 16, when they're in Pisidian Antioch, Paul stood up motioning with his hand and he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. After they left Iconium, they, verse chapter 14, verse 7, it says they continued to do what? To preach the gospel. Their focus was on preaching, not because they didn't find any social needs in the places they went. There surely were the same types of social needs that we have today. In fact, if you think about just the city of Rome during Paul's lifetime, the city of Rome had about a million occupants at that time. There was many of the same social needs that we have today. Uh, poverty was common. There was a massive gap between the rich and the poor. Unemployment was extremely high. There was up to 200,000 people in the city living off of state-sponsored welfare in Rome. The living conditions in some of the slums were terrible. 
There was crime, there was prostitution, there was slavery, which was a normal part of life for many Roman citizens. And when Paul wrote the church to the church in Rome, he didn't write and say, I can hardly wait to come to you to, in Rome so I can lead a charge of Christ-centered social justice. He didn't say that. Well, it's phenomenal is that he said, so for my part, I'm eager to, pre- eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Romans 1, verses 15 through 16. I think sometimes that when we get ready to send out a missionary or when we plan a mission, we almost have the idea or the attitude that the word of God somehow is not strong enough to draw people to Christ. Therefore, we must do something else that will draw people in so that we can have a platform for this because they won't listen to this. God's not strong enough to draw people using his word. Therefore, we need to have some sort of social justice as a stepping stone that will bring them to receptibility for the gospel. And that's a wrong idea. It's not our eloquence or our human speaking ability that's going to help people to turn and trust in Jesus, nor is it the power of good works that butter them up somehow. It's the proclamation of God's word, and it's God's word as it is heard and understood that will change people's hearts and convict them of sin. Sometimes we think that the gospel is just for unbelievers and not for believers. Paul was writing to believers in Rome, the passage I read earlier in chapter 1, when he said, I long to come and preach the gospel to you. The gospel is just as much for believers as it is for unbelievers. For unbelievers, they need it because if you do not know Christ, you have no hope in this world. You can be a drug addict. Somebody can help you get off drugs. But if you don't know Christ, you're just still a person going to hell. There's no hope for you. And if you're a believer who's already given his life to Christ and you're wondering, but how do I live godly because I'm struggling with my old tendencies, Titus 2 says that grace is your teacher that helps you to deny ungodliness. And so we need to be reminded of the gospel, even as believers, because the story that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins helps motivate me to live a life that glorifies him. It's good news, and we need to be reminded of that good news. In Africa, there's, there are these um, streets that they'll put through villages, and imagine yourself as a young kid with dirt all around you, and now you've got this tar road going through. How fun it'd be to go out there and play on it. And yet, if your parents say don't play on it, you shouldn't do it. But if they're not around, would you do it? You betcha. Why? Because we're sinners. And then, let's suppose one day you're out there, and a truck comes along, you don't hear it, everybody else gets off the road, and your neighbor sees you, and he runs and pushes you out of the road, and he gets hit by the truck. And just to be not so gruesome, let's just say that it just cuts his leg off. It doesn't kill him. He loses his legs. They rush him to the hospital. Uh, They cut off what was remaining, and they put him in a wheelchair. Months later, he comes back. You would feel terrible and yet grateful. You're still alive because of his sacrifice. Let me ask you this. The very next day, somebody says, let's go play on the road. Would you do it? No. It's still fresh in your mind. But what happens six months, a year, three years, four years later? Kids say, hey, let's go play on the road. Might you be tempted to go play on the road? I might. But if my neighbor wheeled out of his, on his wheelchair and waved at me and said, hey, how's it going? 
Would I go play? No. Why? Because grace teaches us to, un- to deny ungodliness, Titus 2.11. And so I need to hear the gospel for myself to remind Jesus died for my sin, and that's going to help me to live a life that is glorifying him. Paul and Barnabas began with preaching the message. I read a story about a man who, who he worked for a large company and he decided when he got the job that he was, because he was a Christian, he wanted people to come to faith, but he wasn't going to mention anything about the gospel because he wanted his actions to speak louder than his words. And so he was, he's going to wait and, and, and just be quiet about the gospel, but live a life that was glorifying to God. And years went by and finally one of his uh, co-workers came to faith in Christ and his co-worker said to him, uh, he said to his co-worker, hey, I heard that you uh, came, became a Christian. He says, that's right. He says, uh, I too am a Christian. He goes, you are? He says, yes. He says, well, you're one of the main reasons why I waited so long to become a Christian. You're the reasons why I thought I didn't need to become a Christian. He said, how's that? He said, well, I looked at your life and I saw somebody who was so content and so happy and so peaceful and had such joy in the midst of trials and tribulation. And I thought if he can do it without Christ, why can't I? You've heard that it says that actions speak louder than words, which means that words alone mean little. But actions alone could be even more damning. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. And you know, I think one of the best ways that you as an individual can preach the gospel to people around you is to talk about what you're learning here. I think one of the best forms of evangelism is when it really is, when your life really is being affected by the Word of God, when you're so devoted to a place that teaches and preaches the Word of God like this is, and the Word of God is changing you, and you can honestly say to your coworkers and friends and family, you won't believe what I'm learning at church. I, I have never seen the Bible like this. I've never understood God like this. It is phenomenal, where it's just naturally coming out of your life in everyday conversation. In the book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, he tells a story, gives a quote of someone who said that whenever I've earned the right to choose the topic of conversations, I choose the topic of topics, Jesus Christ. And I like that quote because it reminds us the importance of speaking about Christ, but it also tells us the balance of earning the right to choose the topic of conversation. And sometimes that might be five minutes sitting next to someone and you've earned the right to choose that topic. Sometimes it might be five weeks or five days or five months. But if it's five years before you can ever bring up with somebody, you might be moving too slow. I don't want to put undue guilt on you, but I want to give you hope. And the only hope that people have in this world is by understanding the word, so we need to proclaim it. And our mission as a church, as individuals, and in the mission, mission work that we support around this world has to be beginning with and continuing with the proclamation of the word of God. And that's, and that's how their mission began. It began with proclamation. A second description of the mission of the church is the mission resulted in polarization. The mission resulted in polarization. When I talk about polarization, I mean like North Pole, South Pole. Nobody on the equator. When Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, it divided people. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 and then down to verse 4. It says in verse 1, And they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. This is great. 
If you look at the previous chapter, the very last verse, Acts 13, verse 52, it says, And the disciples, those are the ones from the previous town, Pisidia and Antioch, were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There were some who were rejoicing because they believed the Lord changed their hearts. But there were others at the other extreme, Acts 14, verse 2, it says, But the Jews who disbelieved, literally disobeyed, because it was considered disobedient to reject what you knew to be true or, or, or the true message, but they disbelieved, they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Can you imagine living in a city where half of the people wanted to kill you and the other half of the people thought you were the greatest person to ever visit them? Half of the people in the whole town were cut to the quick and gnashed their teeth at you like they did to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And the other half were like, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Thank you for coming all this way and bringing us this truth. As one preacher said, when Paul walked into a room, it was either duck or pucker. He didn't know, you know, what he's walking into. People either hated him or loved him. There was no middle ground. You say, well, how does this encourage me to be bolder in my witness for Jesus Christ? It encourages you because if people are divided over what you say, you should know that that's normal. But it should motivate you because if nobody is offended by any message that you share with them, perhaps you're not sharing it clearly enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that God is a holy God. He is above all. He is completely other than us. And he demands holiness and sin cannot be in his presence. All men, by nature, because of Adam, are created as rebels against God. We may shake our fists against him, and yet he determines how many times we will live to shake our fists against him. We all sin, and the last thing that any of us want is for our sin to be exposed because we love our sin and we believe the lie that somehow, if I harbor this sin, it's worth it. Not realizing the cancerous effects that it destroys everything. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, never sinned. Therefore, he never had to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified on the cross so that those who would repent and turn and trust in him as Lord, that that he would pay for their sins on the cross and their sins would be taken out of their account and placed into his account and his righteousness would be taken out of his account and placed into your account so that when you stand before God one day, he looks at your life, he says, another perfect life just like my son washed, cleansed, sinless. Amen. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's what we need to be proclaiming. But the bad news is that those who do not repent, no matter how sincere, no matter how vigilant they are in appearing to do good works. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. There's only one name, and it's the name of Jesus Christ whereby you can be saved. So our message needs to be clear enough. When I was in Malawi, 
Central Africa. I used to, we had a building project and I'd go to the same shop again and again and it was run by a man who was a Muslim man. And one day he said to me, uh, so you're a Christian? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, we have a lot in common. I said, really? What do we have in common? He says, well, you believe in a holy book. We believe in a holy book. You believe in God. We believe in Allah. We, we believe it's the same person. And you believe in Jesus. And we believe in Jesus. And I said, you believe in Jesus? And he said, oh, yes. Yes, I, of course I believe. But I believe he was just a good teacher. I don't believe he was a, he was God. This is confusing to me. I mean, if I came to you and was teaching you the Bible, and then somewhere in my message, I happen to say, by the way, I'm God. Would you think I'm a good teacher? Would you walk out of here and say, oh, he's a really good teacher. He thinks he's God, which is a little weird, but oh, a really good teacher. I hope we have him back. No, as soon as Adam got back, he'd say, please, let's never have that guy back here again. He's got a total God complex, and he's loony. There's no way you would think I was a good teacher. The only thing that could stick in your mind is I was a terrible teacher, and everybody who heard Jesus teach who didn't like his message thought that of him. Those who did hear him teach, they understood that he was complaining to be the Messiah. They understood that when he said he was the Son of God, he was claiming equality with God. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. John 10, 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you for my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood what he, who he claimed to be. And they wanted to kill him because of it. Ultimately, that's why they crucified him. Then you have after the crucifixion, you have the resurrection, that glorious picture. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of many more resurrections to come. I love 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the first fruits. You know, when you plant a huge field, in ancient times you didn't have big equipment, so you planted it in sections, small, like so it took weeks to plant it. And so it harvested in sections as well. And the first one to come up was the first fruits. And if you want to know whether you're going to have a good crop that year, you looked at the first fruits. And it was an indication of what was to come. And Christ rose from the grave. He's the first fruits of our resurrection, of those who are in Christ. We one day, he conquered death, not only for himself, but for us. And we are living eternally now. We will die physically, but we will raise from the grave. This is what the scriptures teach. And Jesus, when he rose from the grave, remember he appeared to the 10 disciples. Thomas, we're not sure where Thomas was. We know Judas, he was away. And so afterwards, the 10 went to Thomas and they said, he's alive. Jesus is the Messiah. He's risen. And what did Thomas say? I will not believe unless I put my hands here. See, see, see his hands and put my hand here in his side. And then we have that tremendous passage in John chapter 20, verse 27. Jesus appears to Thomas and he says to Thomas, Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas didn't put his hand in his side. Thomas recognized him as who he claimed to be and who he was. He's God. And Thomas worshipped him as God. 
And if Jesus wasn't God, then Jesus is guilty of idolatry and he's a sinner. You can't say he's a good teacher and he's not God. Either he's a terrible teacher who claimed to be God and wasn't, or he is God. And we need to be careful about allowing people to patronize us and say all that we have in common when we're worshiping different gods. Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus said in John 8, 24, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we need to be clear about this. The message that we proclaim polarizes people. Their mission began with proclamation. Their mission resulted in polarization. But a third description that characterized Paul and Barnabas' mission is their mission involved planting churches. Their mission involved planting churches. Take a look at Acts 14, verse 3. It says, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Now, some of you might read this and you say, well, where in this verse does it say that they're planting churches? Well, first, I'd like to point out the word so or therefore, depending on what version you're using. The very first word of verse verse three, notice its position after verse two. It seems like it shouldn't be there. Verse two says, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they took off. No, therefore, they spent a long time there. If you read a verse that says, therefore, they spent a long time there, you, you would expect the verse before it to be something good. Oh, the disciples loved them and they heard it and they all wanted their teaching all the more. Therefore, they spent a long time there. No, the Jews were stirring them up and embittered against them. Therefore, they stayed a long time there. It's really mind-boggling. And we know that they, they were bolder by God's grace because they were speaking boldly, it says. The ESV says they're speaking boldly for the Lord. The in New King James says they're speaking boldly in the Lord. But I think a better representation is what the New American Standard says. They were speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. The Lord was giving them extra strength to be there and stay there in spite of the opposition that was happening. The Lord's hand was upon them. And the reason why they stayed longer was to help establish a church, and we know that because of Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. Same chapter, skip down a little bit. Acts 14, I'll begin reading in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. Iconium is where they're at now in the beginning of chapter 14. And to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 23, this is what I want to point out. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Do you see why they spent a long time there? They wanted churches in every city and they had to leave before elders were established. So they actually came back and spent enough time to establish elders in every church. Their mission involved church planting with reliance upon the Lord. Now, if you talk or read articles about missions, 
There are a lot of buzzwords out there, and, and it sounds really good. But it's not really focused on the reliance upon the church and involvement with the church. Many of these things, uh, it's not. There's something called holistic mission. Holistic mission. The idea is that we, we, we work with somebody's physical needs at the same time as we work with their spiritual needs which I would argue is a bad model for proclaiming the gospel. D.L. Moody said, uh, grew up at a he preached at a time with great poverty, and he says, if you're preaching the word of God with the Bible in one hand and bread in the other, put the bread behind your back for fear that they might come after the bread instead of the Bible. And yet this idea of holistic mission has caught on. And the idea, and I, I lived this. I was 19 years in Africa. M my first assignment involved it was just over a year i was i took over for a missionary who was gone for a year and i was there and uh i was involved that we had we had a hundred acres of property in deep dark africa my dream was to be a bush missionary i mean that isn't that everybody's dream isn't that what you want to be I, I got to a place no running water no electricity i was getting water out of lake malawi and there were hippos and crocodiles right there isn't that wonderful boil the water i mean this was great you know I had 26 Bible college students. We had 100 acres of land. We had 400 chickens. We had 50 goats. We were building a huge farm work to, 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 to teach the Africans the Bible and at the same time how to support themselves through agricultural work. Holistic mission. I love the idea. To this day, I still love the idea. I think it's a phenomenal idea. I've just never seen it work. It's not holistic. It's not even halfistic. It, 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 what happens is, what happens is the, the, the agricultural work dominates everything at the expense of shepherding people in the word. You wake up in the morning, the first thing on your mind is, what about the chickens? We've got to get the, the eggs. We've got to get the eggs clean to the market. They're going to be bad. We didn't do it two days, last two days because we were fixing the pump to get water. If we don't get pumped to the crops, water to the crops, the crops die. We can't support the ministry, and the whole holistic model fails. So everything is, you know, you're, you're, you're working all day so hard in such difficult circumstances and you've got people for two or three years and you don't have time to really invest them in the word. You're tired. You've got late nights. There was one night, I remember, um, we, we had chicken thieves. We could lose 50 chickens in a month, one at a time. People just walking out with a chicken. And I couldn't figure out, how, how is it nobody sees somebody walking out with one of our chickens? So I'd place our, our students who were working all day and studying and, you know, to stand up on guard duty. And one night, I was so frustrated, I said, listen, here's a, a can of pe pepper spray. We're going to get them this time. All right, I showed them how to use it. You flip this lid, psh, and I put them inside the chicken coop. Now, it was a big chicken coop. I know that Californians don't like people, chickens and babies and all this. But anyway, so it was, it was this big chicken coop. There he is, and he's ready. And when they come in, I said, flip this and get them, right? And so he got tired of waiting, so he went to his friend, his fellow student, and taught him how to do it and replaced it. Well, there's two in the morning. I hear cackling, screaming, coughing, and the thieves had made it into the chicken pen, and the student who was there flipped the cap and sprayed himself right in the face. <laughs> and the thieves got away, and I'm up, and I'm coming with my whatever. I don't know, I'm the, uh, you know, I, I've got a little taser, like, that's going to do anything? I don't know. Just scare them, you know? Get away. Leave our chickens alone. And we were seen by the local village as the fortress, the one with all the wealth. Not really as seen something to help them. And then my 
My student's coming to me. He's got like tears coming down from spraying himself at, you know, point blank in the eyes. And, and this kind of thing happens. I've got a bunch of stories I could tell you where you're just tired all the time. The church has got to be there. Eventually, the thing that really drew me away from, from, from being involved in that is that the, the local church was in such dire straits, just such great needs there. The pastors weren't trained. We were doing the evangelistic work. We had 240 kids coming to our camp, and my thought was, who's going to, she- who's going to shepherd these kids after they come to Christ? If the church is not here, if the church is weak, we need to be about strengthening the church. And if we're involved in missions where there's not a strong local church, We've got the cart before the horse, and there's a problem. And let me just go a step further. The church is really where you should be a part of. And if you're just coming and you're not really involved in a church, or you float around from church to church, or you, you know, you're not in a local church, or you maybe you attend this regularly, but you haven't committed, your, commit yourself to the church. We have this idea that I could be a universal Christian. I'm a part of his universal church. That's a foreign concept in the Bible. No member of the Ephesian church was, yeah, I, mean, I live in the Ephesus, but I'm not a member of Paul's, you know, the one Paul goes to. I'm just a member of the universal church. It would have been a foreign concept. I had a guy come to me and say, well, I'm like the Apostle Paul. I said, well, really? How so? I'd like to meet you. I, I love the Apostle Paul. He said, well, I just float around, go from church to church. I'm not really committed to any of them. I said, which Apostle Paul are you talking about? Is this the one from the Bible? Because that sounds like a different... Because Apostle Paul spent three years in Ephesus, day and night, going from house to house to people in the church. Let me just encourage you. Do life. Live life with people that you worship with. That's the body of Christ. And sometimes we can get so focused on helping the universal poor of the world that we neglect the people who are right around us. We don't know what's suffering, what's going on. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we think, well, I, people need to know that I'm involved in helping these people on the other side of the world. But Jesus said, how will they know? Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you what? Love one another. That you're doing life with one another so that people look at this church and they say, they say, I can't believe how much those people love one another. I've never seen anything like it. That's the mission of the church. Now, some people look at the end of verse 3, and they say, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. It says in the end of verse 3 that it says, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And they say, that's the social action. You see, you're telling us here that social action is really, you know, something that's not as important. But there it seems like they're preaching and doing healings. So isn't their healing equivalent with our social action? Shouldn't we set up hospitals next to every church? Well, that's a good question. But let's take a closer look at the text. Okay? Social action is not an equal goal, and it wasn't of Paul and Barnabas. Because the passage that we're looking at does not emphasize social action to the same degree. Rather, the, the, the healing, the mir- miracles of signs and wonders confirmed the word. Take a look. If you look at verse 3 in the ESV, it was the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. 
The New American Standard Bible says the word was testifying to the word of his grace. NIV says the Lord confirmed the message of his grace, granting signs and wonders. In other words, signs and wonders confirmed the message that was spoken. The Bible was not yet complete. So when you came in as Paul the Apostle and you came in to a place like Iconium, you said, guess what? The Messiah is here. They say, well, how do we know you're speaking the truth? It was confirmed through signs and wonders. If I come to you and I say, this is what God says for you today, how do you know well I'm telling the truth? You have the Bible. And if we believe that the Bible is complete and sufficient, which it declares itself to be, that if it's profitable, that if everything we need for life and godliness we have, then you can check it with this. And I don't need to show you signs and wonders in order for you to believe. In fact, if I did... You would say, I don't believe it. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 teaches the same principle, by the way. Let me just read that for you. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 3, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God used signs and wonders in that early stage of the church to confirm the message that was spoken. And because we have the completed word of God, we no longer need confirmation through signs and wonders. It would be fun for me if we did. I could reach my hand in, in my coat here and pull it out, be all leprosy, lepr leprous, and then put it back, and now it's... I could do that. Shake your hand at the door. Oh, leprosy. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I could, I could do all kinds of weird and spectacular things, but for what end? We have something better, don't we? In his revelation. Jesus is the healer, and I want to say this. I don't deny for one minute that God doesn't still heal today. I believe he heals today. I believe it with all my heart. But he does not heal. He does not give the gift of healing to an individual man in the same way he did to his apostles. We just don't see it. They healed instantaneously. They healed completely. They healed diseases where a person's legs were withered and he stands up, no atrophy, and he's jumping and leaping and praising God. We just don't see that today. They, they, they never failed in their healing. And what we see today, and I'll be honest with you because I've, I've, I've seen it, not that I wasn't being honest with you before. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being frank with you. What we see today is somebody gets healed of lower back pain. We, get, we, we don't see visible diseases. There are people in wheelchairs who go to these healing crusades and they get turned away because their dis disability is too visible. I'm telling you, it is a crime that the church doesn't recognize that there's something different today. God heals. No doubt about it. But Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 tells me that the purpose of those signs and wonders was to testify to the word which was spoken. And I'll leave you with that. Let's move on to our fourth detail that will help you better understand your mission. The fourth detail is the mission often resulted in persecution. Not only begin with proclamation, result in pol polarization, um, it involved planting as well. And I'm just going to include these last two together. The mission res often resulted in persecution, 
and the mission included progression with perseverance to the next place. So it often had persecution, but it often moved on to the next place. In Acts 14, verses 5 and 6, it says, When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and, and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it. There was a moment. And the, 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 this was phenomenal. Somehow, Paul and Barnabas became aware that they tried to stone them. There, there was a plot to kill them. I don't know whether they had thrown rocks and missed or whether they just got word of it. The text doesn't tell us. But we know that they were saying, okay, we need to move on because if we stay, we're going to die. And we believe the Lord has more for us. So they started to move on. The same Jews from Iconium followed them. And in verse 19, in Acts 14, 19, it says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But Paul and Barnabas had such a high view of God's sovereignty that they were willing to persevere in the midst of difficult persecution. The mission included progression with perseverance. Verses 6 and 7 say, They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. I think one of the most shocking things that we read in Acts chapter 14 happens in the next city that they go to when they're in Lystra. Verse 20, take a look at verse 20. It says, But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city, and this is a shocking statement, ready? The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Why is that shocking? Because in verse 19, Paul was stoned to the extent that the enemies who stoned him thought he was dead. If your enemies who are trying to kill you think they've killed you, you're hurt. If, you're, if your fellow believers come around you and think you're dead and then you open your eyes and you walk into the city that night to sleep, back in the city where you were just drug out of, that's perseverance. But the next day he went to Derby, and the reason why that's shocking to me is Derby was a 45-mile walk. You think Paul didn't persevere? He didn't want one day to go by without the gospel being proclaimed. I'm not saying that it's wrong to take a day off every once in a while. And if ever there was a time where Paul should have taken a day off, it was that day. But the text says that that next day he got up and went to Derby. I want to close by just asking four questions. Because a message like this can be confusing. You can hear a message where he says, yeah, he was saying that we should do these things, that we can do these things, but we should focus on this. So when do I know that I'm focusing on the wrong thing? So let me give you four questions that will help you determine whether the missionary you're supporting or the trip you want to go on or the work you're involved in or whatever is maybe not having the right focus. First question is this. Does it neglect proclamation? I met more than one missionary in Africa who's not involved in a local church, who's not really preaching the word, who's sent out to do physical ministry. Now, I think it's okay. If you had a doctor from here who wanted to go to Malawi, a country of 17 million people and only 265 doctors, I would think you could support him. You could put his picture on the, on the map back there. But if all you were doing were sending doctors around, 
We'd be more like the Red Cross and less like the church. So let's have, a, let's have the right, let's make sure that we're, we're majoring on proclamation ministry. So does it involve proclamation? And if that doctor went, there should be a solid church that if people come to Christ through his ministry, they could be discipled. Does it involve proclamation? Secondly, is it driven by emotions? A lot of times we decide who we're going to support or what we're going to do based off of photo-friendly ministries or because a friend of ours, his cousin's uncle's son, is going on this and uh, won't you please just support him? And, and now we're, we're involved in something because it tugs on our heart for some reason other than, hey, you know, just maybe it's just emotions. Is it driven by emotion? Does it neglect proclamation? Thirdly, is it unbalanced? In other words, there are many things we must do. There are some things we can do, but if we neglect the things we must do to do the things we can do, we are unbalanced. And fourthly, is it too universal? Is it too universal? In other words, are we caught up with all of our energy and attention on somebody way far away, like I was talking about before, but neglecting the, our local church and the people around us? If you say, say no to all those, I'm not neglecting proclamation. I'm not driven more by emotion than the word. I'm not unbalanced. I'm not too universal in my mission. Then you have the freedom. To, and, and I would encourage you, Christians will. Christians must. We, we can't walk by somebody who's hurting without feeling compassion. Go ahead and reach out to them. But let's not get sidetracked with good things that take us away from more important things. I don't want to be the guy who comes, who, who came to you and said, well, he didn't like orphans and he told us not to help people like fire victims. That's not me. I, I, we, had a, we had some people from our church in Johannesburg who started taking in abandoned HIV positive babies. We ended up with six home, four homes with six babies each, 24 babies that our church looked after. I sat on the board of that organization. I, I, I believe taking care of orphans is important, but that's not the gospel. That's the outflow of a changed heart that takes care of needs around us. Historically, this is why we must keep our focus. Historically, there's a danger if we forget our focus. And the danger is that we become so focused on social action that we turn liberal and forget the gospel altogether. When the mission of the church fails, liberalism flourishes and true worship dies, and this is what we must be about we desire the worship of a holy God who deserves it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, and thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We pray, Lord, that your name be exalted. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to build your church. I thank you for the work you're doing in this church. You are a faithful God, and great is your faithfulness and has been your faithfulness here. And I pray that this message would only encourage and spur on the believers from this church to be more devoted the mission that you've called us to and in their sending out of specific missionaries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.